From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. At the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, ventilators were a critical tool that suddenly became scarce. Engineer Jim Richards saw a need and got to work. He and his colleague Tyler Daly set out to build a low-cost ventilator that could fill the need of hospitals overwhelmed by patients who were dying because of a lack of oxygen. Together with pulmonologist Keith Romano of Brigham and Women's Hospital, they created the AeroBreath, a ventilator that can operate electronically or manually and costs less than $100. The AeroBreath has the potential to dramatically improve oxygen delivery in hospitals and clinics. Thank you all for joining us, um, Dr. Romano, um, and I'm here with Jim Richards and Tyler Daly, who were also collaborators on uh, the AeroBreath. Before we get into what the AeroBreath is, could each of you just give us a short intro to yourselves? Sure. So um, I'm Keith Romano. Um, I'm a pulmonologist and critical care intensivist uh, in the Division of Pulmonary Medicine at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, um, and also uh, a, a research fellow and uh, have a PhD background in biochemistry um, and minimum molecular genetics and chemical biology lab at Mass General, uh, within the Mass General Brigham system. I'm Jim Richards. I'm an engineer and partner at Aerodyme Corporation, uh, have an MIT 77EE and uh, a couple of careers, one in consumer electronics, but then the last 20 years in aerospace. I'm Tyler Daly. I'm a mechanical engineer at Aerodyme and on the AeroBeth project, I did a lot of the design work, testing. Um, so the AeroBreath is a kind of low cost ventilator that uh, the three of you developed. Tell us about the problem that you saw during the pandemic. Um, there was a lot of stories about how ventilators were in short supply and uh, people were trying to build ventilators. What was the problem that you saw and how did you try to solve it? I can comment a little bit on what we saw, I think we all saw it. I don't think you have to have a degree in medicine to we all kind of um, had, you know, witnessed what was going on, which was we were facing this global pandemic. Uh, it was certainly coming our way. We had limited information about what was going on overseas in China. Um, and at, at the time, uh, around March of 2020, there was quite a crunch in, in Italy as well. So developed countries with good health, you know, a healthcare infrastructure, uh, we're having basically waves of patients come in and overwhelming their hospital systems. And so immediately, I think a lot of uh, people, both engineers and, and uh, physicians, public health uh, experts, uh, were all concerned about um, the, the, amount, the number of ventilators that we had to support patients um, as we were facing this crunch. And so I think there was an initiative, um, you know, uh, worldwide to, to check our stockpiles, you know, hospital systems were bracing for impact basically. And there was a very real possibility, even in our own system within Mass General Brigham, that, that the, 
the number of patients uh, who are who are soon to be coming to the hospital would soon outstrip this our capacity to to care for them. And you know, I'll let Jim talk from his perspective because you know Jim was the one who you know with this information really had um, you know had the, had the motivation to do something about it with his background in in aeroscience and um, and in engineering. Um, so, you know, this would, this laid the groundwork for what was otherwise what would soon be a serendipitous, um, you know, collaboration that lasted for, I would say over a year. One of my first reactions, uh, on behalf of my family was to check as to whether there were any ventilators actually still available. And I did find a ventilator, a Philips Respironics 102B, uh, that was available on eBay, as I recall. Uh, it was a used unit, no guarantees made. It was about 20 years old. Uh, it was dated from about the year 2000. And uh, uh, I decided to buy it. So, so shelled out the cash, got that unit in here. I called up the local medical center, the UVM Health Center, and said, hey, I've got this unit over here. And if you need it, you can have it. Uh, but I said, we've, we've brought it in to, to help us understand what this challenge might, might be like. Tell us a little bit more about how, how your uh, meeting happened. Um, Jim, did you start working with Tyler and then you came then you got connected with Keith. Is that how that happened? Well, Tyler and here were uh, Tyler and I were both here at Aerodyne at the time, mm-hmm. uh, engaged in our ordinary aerospace business day to day. And then, as the uh, uh, you know the restrictions began to go into place, uh, it it got down to just. Uh, the the two of us and one other individual here, uh, and we did continue. We're able to continue a certain amount of our aerospace activity uh, during that very tight time, but it gave us uh, the the space and the time, and the tools and so forth, which were all around us uh, to create mechanical devices and test them and engineer them and so forth. And so uh, we began to spend a, a fair amount of time on this on this prototype, uh, and we really hadn't talked about it much out of the family, really, uh, when the connection occurred uh, with Keith. And that was uh, through uh, one of my daughters, also uh, an MIT grad, it turned out. And she, through the MIT forum, connected with Keith. You take it from here. Do you remember? the? Yeah. So this is actually a pretty, pretty funny story because uh, Jim, I don't think you're pretty active on social media and I'm certainly not active on no. social media. <laughs> but I think I think during the pandemic, especially in the early days, there was a lot of nervous energy on my part, uh, you know, when, when not working, you know, COVID related shifts, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't the normal jobs that we would typically work during the day. It was largely locked down, trying to protect your families. And, uh, and it was really, really kind of funny actually, because uh, I was not spending any time on social media. Jim was not spending time on social media but it was Jim's daughter and my wife who both are connected on social media through an MIT connection, uh, both being uh, alumni of MIT. The first call between Jim and I that I got set up, some, you know, my, my wife came running in being like, they're looking for a pulmonologist. Someone's looking for a pulmonologist to talk to. And I'm like, I'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> um, so I, I get Jim's number and we call and we have this kind of like a back and forth conversation, which Jim is actually good at recounting. I think Keith and I were... 45 minutes of a 50 minute conversation working the problem up until the patient was in the ICU, trying to understand could simple technology help? Uh, could, a, could a relatively inexpensive and highly producible unit help in that 
on-ramp that ultimately might end up in the ICU for some patients. And we were having some difficulty finding, uh, finding a, an affirmation there in our discussion. But then somehow there was that moment where Keith or I, somebody just tipped it in such a way to begin in the conversation talking about what happens from then on out. And Keith then began to talk about uh, the loading, the fact that uh, you know you you had to deal with the patients all the way through to their ultimate recovery, and even when they might be able to be discharged from the ICU, they might still need ventilation and had to go with them in effect. And and his one of his biggest problems at the time or worries was that any patient exiting the ICU was going to take one of Keith's sophisticated ventilators with that he or she into the recovery area and and you might not get it back for three or four weeks and so then we began to see that part of the problem and i think rapidly uh concluded within another five minutes of conversation that yes uh low, low much lower cost uh drastically lower cost drastically simpler technology very likely could help with that part uh, of the, the overall situation. I, I think a real important concept to get up, 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 up front is at the time, th there were people who were making very basic, what we call bag squeezers. Um, you might want to call it just a respirator. And these were not very sophisticated devices. Just think of a person squeezing a bag and getting, an, getting a machine to do it, getting some sort of a, um, a, you know, a motor to do it for you, um, but not very sophisticated. So you know, you can't breathe comfortably as, a, as an awake patient with a, a bag squeezer type device um, because, you, you know, you can't control when, when you get a breath and when you don't get a breath. It's just going to give it to you when it's programmed to give it to you. A lot of people were shifting towards that kind of a solution so that if there wasn't a ventilator available, people could be sedated, um, sometimes even paralyzed and put on bag squeezers just as a temporizing measure. What, what Jim and I were struggling with is I was watching hospital systems that didn't necessarily just need that. Like, you know, you could imagine a situation where if you, you know, if you don't, if you have too many patients coming in, they can't all go on bag squeezers. You're going to be getting a, a line of, of, you know, people on bag squeezers going out the door. So, you know, the eureka moment we had is to, is to try to add functionality at a low cost so that you liberate the, the hospital system using this type of a ventilator to now also use it in an awakened breathing patient. So it could be a weaning ventilator. So when patients are getting better and they don't, they don't need the state of the art ventilator anymore that we typically have, you know, on the floors um, and in the, in the ICUs, uh, you could, you could transition to uh, this affordable alternative that could also be used, um, you know, to help patients wean. They're not quite ready to, to, to come off the ventilator, but, but we can put them on it as they're getting better and, and we're not expecting them to get worse. So Tyler, um, tell us, why don't we pick back up with you and what your experience was with uh, in the development process? As Jim said, we, we looked at it, you know, over an afternoon just to get an idea as to what it, what it actually does um, and what, what sort of features it had. And we started to come up with our own ideas as to how that could be done more inexpensively. Ventilators are sophisticated air pumps, basically. So came up with our own air pump in effect. And once we tested that out, we started to add some of the features that the Respironics had. 
We had probably as we first shared with Keith, we probably had what, uh, Tyler, just the uh, basically just the volume delivery. So we, we were reciprocating, we were delivering the breath, right? But uh, there really wasn't much else, much other sophistication. Uh, and uh, the electronics weren't present. Uh, we, we initially were thinking uh, just in terms of a mechanical device to keep it absolutely simple, as simple as possible. So you could construct these in Africa, right? Probably from a relatively available materials. Uh, later on, uh, with Keith's guidance, it became, it, it came to have simple electronic control and began to have, as Tyler mentioned, pressure modes, uh, ability to, to sense pressure. But there were, there were safety aspects that, that Keith helped us engineer in. And there were also functionality aspects that meant that a patient in more trouble with breathing would be able to use it. So, so you know, you're able to catch it. And, and I think, Keith, at the end of it, I think we were very close to where you concluded uh, that even emergency room use itself was not uh, out of the question, right? The, the, the sophistication had come up over the development months uh, of the AeroBreath that we were very close to having a sufficient functionality for use in a, uh, an ICU, maybe in a, in a pinch, in a smaller hospital environment uh, where they just didn't have the big gun machines available. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, the, the kind of like... Um, the trifecta of things we were looking to achieve was low cost, um, full functionality, uh, and, um, uh, and ease of use intuitive, something just very intuitive that could be easily trained, um, factoring the, the human resource component, right. Uh, that the humans need to interface with it, not just the patient, but the providers, the respiratory therapists, the physicians, the nurses. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, that was built into the design. And I think within that idea of functionality was, um, inherent to that was, you know, the flexibility that you could use this particular ventilator uh, throughout the spectrum of illness. So in patients who are sick and sedated, not breathing on their own, who are effectively sleeping, um, and then to, to those who are awake and breathing and, um, and breathing at the rate that they, they, they desire, uh, which, is, which required a little bit more of a little, the electronics and the controls and pressure sensing. As these features were discussed, as Keith would would inf- inform us, we, we, he, he would help us understand what might be missing in terms of safety uh, and in terms of functionality. And then good interplay, a good rich interplay between his knowledge and our knowledge as to what not only what we could do, but what we could do and remain low cost because certain things would seem to tip you into a lot more sophistication. And for instance, we got all the way through this right to the very end uh, with that high level of functionality on board uh, with no software involved in the product. It was still just very very simple electronic control uh, using operational amplifiers. Uh, One of my uh, senior electives at MIT in 1977, right? Op amps, right? So we were, here we were, however many years later it was, right? <laughs> using two or three op amps to completely implement the electronics of this thing, right? No microprocessor, no code, no software, none of that complexity to worry about. Uh, you might have left a few things behind because you didn't have it on board, but the simplicity you gained and the low cost point you could hit was, uh, was very important to us. Hmm. Yeah. 
two things worth mentioning. Uh, one, when, um, when Tyler says they looked at it, uh, what he means is they, they took it apart right. all the way to the, its core <laughs> components. And what I've learned over, the, over, over my time of knowing these two is that if Jim asked me for my iPhone to look at it, I would say, no, you may not have my iPhone <laughs> because you're just going to take it apart and you're going to tell me how it works. So they, they stripped this poor little uh, PLV 102B down to its down to its skivvies and they looked at it and figured it out. But, the, but, the, but to piggyback on that, like in, in layman's terms, the brilliance of what Jim and Tyler were able to do is a lot of people were looking forward to technology being like, you know, we're going to put state-of-the-art engineering and technology into this unit and we're going to, we're going to put, get a new ventilator together. And there were a lot of that, a lot of that was going on, uh, you know, simultaneously. I think the genius of what, what Jim and Tyler did is they went back in time. They said, Hey, we're going to take this PLV 102B Phillips restaurants ventilator. Presumably, you know, a dozen engineers worked on this for the better part of three, four years. Uh, and got FDA approval and, uh, and put this technology into a unit that was a standard operating you know, ventilator in ICUs for over a decade. So they went back to that past art, that past design. And then they said, now let's use modern technology to make it cheaper. Um, and, then they, and, then, and then layered on a few you know, engineering bits on top that just, that were just, you know, a beautiful design all to, towards the end of containing cost. Um, and so that, that I think in, in layman's terms was the part that I appreciated about their approach, which is just, you know, it's just so simple. It's, it's just beautiful when you think about it. Just for a little context. So what it's, uh, it's December, 2021, we're recording this now. Um, what time frame did this all take place in? Does anybody have track of time? Oh, goodness, <laughs> it's, it's scrubbed all our time machines out. Uh, we applied to the FDA for EUA emergency use approval in March or April of 2020. Wow, so this happened really quickly. Yeah, yeah. We were through the elementary formation of the design in a, in a couple months' time. And then continued on to look at the more subtle, you know, Keith spread the audience looking at it uh, at Partners and at Brigham's. And as more people looked at it, they had more questions. And, mm-hmm. and so we, we took up those questions and Tyler and I would go off and brainstorm and try and understand how we could, again, stay low cost, uh, stay easy to produce, and yet maybe add a, 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 an indicator or a mode or a sa- another safety provision. But we did have papers into the FDA quite early. Uh, one of the great disappointments in the project is that the FAA, the FDA, sorry, uh, aerospace, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, the FDA didn't respond for nine months. It was, uh, and we, uh, we, we dunned many times, we pinged, uh, we tried to work it through some political channels and admittedly they were clearly flooded. Uh, there were many other teams around the country looking at other designs and so forth. And anyway, we didn't get our response hmm. uh, until really outside the window. The, the, uh, the, the probably the window of criticality uh, during the, the initial wave of the, the COVID pandemic had really begun to close by the time the FAA fin- uh, FDA finally uh, responded to us. Yeah. It, tell us about what the kind of status of this project is now. 
in this time, a lot of people were, there was a lot of, there was a kind of a mad dash to, to create ventilators to help. And, and some of it was, was goodwill. I think some of it was a bit self-serving people who were adept at making ventilators could pop them together pretty quickly. Um, and, and, and a lot of those flooded to the FDA in, 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 by means of an emergency, an emergency youth authorization. So, um, with the, with the anticipated shortage, the FDA was authorizing and, and often the, those who are most, who are the, in, in the best position suited financially and otherwise to put together a ventilator uh, that's cheaper, they, they were the ones who were most successful. So I think from the beginning, Jim Tyler and I, you know, we, we kind of had a mantra of, you know, we're not going to join the rat race. We're not, we, we can't compete with that, nor do we want to. And so I think we always had an understanding and, and I certainly had an understanding of this and I conveyed this to, to, uh, to Jim and Tyler that we're, we're addressing a problem that always existed. There might be a ventilator shortage in the United States. There certainly was one in Italy, in places in Africa and places in the Caribbean, places in, in uh, Latin America, Central America. There, there's no guarantee that your auction supply chain is gonna be uh, intact. You know, One day uh, it might be there and then a road, a, a mudslide might, might cover the road and then, then you have no more oxygen to that area. So, you know, we, we were very, I think, confident that, that we had uh, a need space that we were addressing regardless of, of whether the pandemic fizzled out or, or persisted. So I, I think in that sense, you know, we, we, can, we did collaborate and we did talk, we had early talks with a lot of the global health organizations, particularly the academic ones, um, like Partners in Health uh, to talk about, you know, what we were doing and, and how it might fit in a way to suit their needs. Um, and, and those conversations are still ongoing. So while we ended up not going through the, the EUA pathway, um, I, I think that the, that as we speak today, the, the air breath ventilator, I think is uh, in, in, in excellent shape from a design standpoint. I think what it's in need of is, is funding to propel it into, um, in, into a space where it can actually make an impact. I think that Jim, myself, Tyler, we all agree that, you know, it could be incredibly impactful in some of these places, both to conserve oxygen. You know, we, we did some early uh, testing on the, on the ventilator, pairing it with some auction delivery devices. And we think that something like the AeroBreath could, could make one auction tank um, last twice as long. So that's how much auction we think we could save with it. So, that, so there are certainly applications that we're, we're developing. Uh, I think at this point, we're just looking for partners. What? has this experience taught you um, either about collaboration or just how you think about your own work? In aerospace, uh, you know, and, and it really at large, no question is, 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 is a dumb question. You know, this sort of thing. The, the approaches to collaboration are, are very important. And I think, you know, Keith was willing to let his guard entirely down, right? And, 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 and the same for Tyler and I, it's the way we operate uh, in the aerospace industry, you know, is it's all open book. Tremend it has to be tremendous transparent, transparency, you know, where we are, uh, we are enabling people to be thousands of feet in the, uh, in, in the air in metal boxes, right? And, and so we have to, you, you can't have communication blockages, right, uh, amongst your team members and your key contributing uh, engineering uh, groups and so forth. And, and so that's what we brought to this from, from Aerodyne and from this side. That's what we brought to Keith, right, was a willingness. We, we, if we didn't understand something, we asked him to explain it again 
right? Uh, we weren't embarrassed to, to, to say, uh, Keith, we're really not getting that. What, what, what did you mean? Can you give us a different explanation of that so that we could grasp it uh, from our experience base, right? And Keith was the very same way uh, in working with us the other way around so that, you know, he would, again, let's guard down and just tell us he didn't get something or no, whatever. And so, so the willingness, I think that's very crucial uh, to really get to the, to the heart of collaboration is that openness and that transparency and that, that understanding that no question is, is, is too dumb, you know, or anything like that. And I, I mean, I think to, to put it in a slightly different way is that we, this was a very good collaboration. We, we liked each other. We, 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 look, we could talk effectively with each other. We didn't, there was no um, judgment or there was no, uh, you know, perceived animosity ever, like ever. So from the minute we spoke, I, I feel like, and the minute I met Jim and Tyler, I was like, this is going to work. And we spent, I don't know, I don't know if this is coming across, but we, I mean, we spent hours and hours and hours together, uh, always remotely, but man, we spent a lot of time together day and night, Jim would pick, Jim would call me anytime and I'd pick up and we'd talk um, and vice versa. And that, I hope that's not just unique to us because, but, but then again, it might be, I don't know, but, but, I, but a lot of the, what was, what came out of this project is certainly a product of how the personalities meshed in a way that was very productive uh, in a way that was, it was really kind of neat and fun. And I, I look back very fondly on the entire time, perfectly honest. Um, the other thing I, as I'll mention what I learned is it really shows uh, what a multidisciplinary collaborative effort can achieve. Um, you know, it, like what I, what I always say is that um, engineers fix problems, but, you know, in, in the medical space anyway, it, it's, it's the clinician, the provider, the person with the clinical knowledge, whether it's doctor, nurse, respiratory therapist, somebody with hands-on experience at the, at the patient side that shines a light on the problem. And there are plenty of examples of technologies that were siloed from their application or things that were made that were inherently flawed. Um, somebody was just doing a bronchoscopy, like a, we, we drive cameras down people's lungs the other day. This is just case in point. Um, a small example, but it's an example. Uh, driving a you know, new, new bronchoscopy, disposable, it's great. You know, infectious control, you just basically drive the camera once and you can dispose of a disposable part and reuse the handle. Beautiful technology. I'm sure a company's making good money on it. Um, except the cord's way too short. So we were trying to do a bronchoscopy on a patient and we're twisting and turning and then we're like, this nice screen, beautiful screen, great view. But man, the cord's just too short. We can't, we can't, like, did anyone try this? Did anyone test this out? That would have been a very simple thing that had they just talked to a provider sooner, uh, it would have worked. Um, but, but I'll tell you, like, there, there's, it's not like there's just like a, a pipeline of providers and engineers to like, you know, do like a matchmaking. Like it's not like we do like speed dating rounds and be like, all right, I like your idea. I like who you are. Let's like get together and make this technology work. The, the, the world we live in is, is so IP protected that like, you know, the doctor input is very limited on, on like a contractual basis. It, whereas what Jim and I did, we were like, we're going to put our guard down. Like we're in a, we're in a global pandemic for goodness sake. Um, let's just do this. And, and we just had this like very unique collaborative interaction and look what, look what happened. It was, you know, so that was, that was, I think the coolest part. Yeah, it was great. And uh, I remember calling Keith one night uh, after I'd first ventilated myself using the arrow breath and, and asking Keith things about what should I be feeling? You know, I, I'm not, I'm not ill, 
uh, I'm healthy, but what should I be feeling? What should this feel like to me? And then we'd talk about various ways that I, by breathing in a certain way, uh, could, could uh, simulate to some extent the, uh, an illness and, and so forth. It was great. You know, and then he'd, we'd, you're trying to, you know, how do you describe what breathing should feel like? You know, mm. but, but we'd go at it, you know, and we'd, we'd get it figured out so that we could actually be sure early on that what we were delivering was, was, it was, it was actually uh, effective ventilation, right? That we, were, we weren't fooling ourselves. Uh, we were in fact ventilating in a way and I'd have the gauges on my fingers and so forth. So, so all guard down, just back and forth, you know, uh, what should it be doing? How do we know it's working? Uh, you know, what should we try next? You know, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Wow, it sounds like a really fun collaboration and um, and productive too. So um, it was great to have this conversation with you, Jim Richards, Tyler Daly from Aerodyme, and Keith Romano, uh, Dr. Keith Romano from uh, Mass General Brigham. Thank you all for joining us. And it was a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, Please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch.